Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. We're going to read the text just like we did last Sunday and kind of pick up on the train of thought where we left things off last Sunday. Verse 6, chapter 3. Just as Abraham, Paul writing to the Galatians, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, brethren. I speak in the manner of men, though it is not only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were promises made. He does not say into seeds, but as, as of many, but as of one, into your seed who is Christ. And I say this, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise... Of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come, would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, We are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As we noted Last Sunday, in these verses, Paul is building a legal argument, a legal case, using the Old Testament scriptures to substantiate two points he made in the first five verses of Galatians 3. His two points in the first five verses were posed in two simple questions. He asked, did you receive, speaking to these Galatian believers, but also to us, the Spirit of God? By the works of the law, the hearing of faith. He's asking, what was the mechanism of your salvation? Was it something you did or was it someone you knew? Was it a work of God or or was it your work? And clearly the answer to this question is that I was saved, not by something I did, but by Jesus's work on the cross and my faith initiating the filling of the Holy Spirit. I received the spirit of God, not by works, but, but by faith. 
And then he asked this second question, not dealing with justification or salvation, but instead dealing with our perfection or our growth, the theological term being sanctification. He says now, having begun in the Spirit. So this work done by God, not you, begun in the Spirit, initiated by God, not about your merit, not about you earning it, but it's a free gift of God you received. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, on a side note, instead of tackling the text, uh, as we would customarily do, line by line, we're kind of taking more of an approach uh, that's thematic in origin. Uh, what Paul says here is fairly complex. It's complicated. You just read through it, and it's hard to wrap your brain around all of it. And so we're kind of approaching the text, not expositionally per se, but we're instead approaching the test thematically. And in order to validate these two points, that you're saved by a work of the Spirit and you're perfected by a work of the Spirit, Paul in these verses lays out three substantiating arguments. This is all recap from last week. First, and we looked at this point in depth, faith and a Savior, Paul would argue, had always been central to God's plan for human righteousness. Paul's saying all of these things that I've been teaching you, that I've been exhorting you to, this idea that the gospel is about grace and grace alone, grace period. It's not works in the sense that it's grace and something I do. It's not legalism in the sense that it's grace, but something I don't do. None of these things play to God's favor. It's grace and grace alone, given, received, and enjoyed. It's not about your efforts or your merit. It's about God's love for you and you receiving it. And this concept of faith in a Savior being the mechanism for God's plan of making you right with God, it was always about faith. It had always been a plan, and he points to Abraham. His second point, and we'll look at this this morning, is that the law of Moses was only given to accentuate humanity's need for the Savior. So faith in a Savior, always God's plan. The law then given to accentuate humanity's need for the Savior. And then his third point is once you've accepted the Savior, it's only logical that there's now no longer a need for the law. This is his legal case that he's presenting in our text. Now, in seeking to set up his second point. So the first, faith in a Savior has always been central to God's plan for human righteousness. The second point, that the law of Moses was now only given not to make you right with God, but to accentuate your need for a Savior Paul's legal mind, before he goes from point one to point two, feels compelled to first explain to his readers how it was that the Mosaic law would not be immediately nullifying to a previous covenant God had given to Abraham. So we understand that there's this concept that there was a promise given to Abraham. He was righteous because he believed in the promise. That's what our text said. But Paul wants to make it clear how then the law given doesn't nullify that promise, which is a good legal argument. Because if the law coming later somehow trumps the promise given to Abraham, then now we've got to deal with the law and not this promise. So Paul's setting up this legal case, this legal argument, the legal ease. And he makes two points to make it clear that while the law was given, it doesn't nullify this covenant given to Abraham. And he does it with two points first. Paul explains in our text that covenants, these agreements, are binding. Look at verse 15, and then look again at verses 17 and 18. He says, brethren, 
I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. And then go to verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, or after the promise that God had given to Abraham, it cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make this promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is not of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, here's Paul's point. When mortal men sign a contract, when you sign your name on a legal agreement, it's a binding thing. It's a bond. It's a done deal. In Greek and Roman culture, signed documents carried incredible weight. If it was signed and it was sealed, it was law. It was binding. Everyone was held to it. If the contract was confirmed, according to Paul, by just normal people, no one annuls it or can take away from it, and no one can add to it. So if you enter into an agreement, it's a covenant, it's a done deal. You can't add to it, you can't take away from it. And his point is that if this reality is true, legally, when it comes to just human beings, how much more true must it be concerning promises or covenants made and sealed by God? Because God made a promise to Abraham, it would be impossible, simply on the nature of what a covenant was, for now the Mosaic law to add to it in some way or take away from it in some way. So a contract is binding. Secondly, Paul points to this fact that the law is kind of a less or a secondary legal agreement because it came through a mediator. Look at verse 19. He says, and it, what is it in context? The law was appointed, literally prescribed, through angels at the hand of a mediator. And this word mediator means one who intervenes to ratify a covenant, basically a lawyer or an arbitrator. And then Paul says, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now, to this point about angels being an instrumental part of the law being given to Moses, which is kind of actually a new concept introduced into Scripture here by Paul, uh, you won't find that uh, in the book of Exodus. You won't find that in the Old Testament. This is kind of a new detail introduced by the apostle. David Guzik, uh, a commentary I love, he says this concerning that. He observes that according to ancient traditions, which we can conclude are true, to, true traditions, according to Paul, the law was delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai by the hands of angels. Angels were, quote, the go-between or mediator for Moses when he received the law of God. Now, here's the point. What makes the law given to Moses different from the promise given to Abraham was that while the law was an agreement that God and man entered into together through the mediation of angels, the promise that God had given to Abraham was instituted unilaterally. Now, we don't have time to go through an exposition of, of this original promise in, in Genesis chapter 15. But when God entered this covenant with Abraham, when this agreement was made with Abraham, when this promise of a Savior was given to Abraham, when this agreement was made, it wasn't made where two Equal parties signed on the dotted line. No, as a matter of fact, God had Abraham cut these animals in half, lay them, and then God was the only one who went through. God made the promise, 
and then put the promise on himself. Man had no role. Abraham did not walk through. It was a promise God made unilaterally, whereas the law was an agreement reached between God and man. The reality is that the covenant of the law was a lesser covenant because of the involvement of angels, the involvement of humans, whereas the covenant God made with Abraham was permanent as it only depended upon God making good on his promises. Man broke the law all the time, right? It was an agreement. You obey me, I'll bless you. Man was terrible at obeying God, constantly breaking the law, constantly breaking this agreement. God constantly giving second, third, fourth, fifth, hundredth chances. The other promise to Abraham is not dependent on man's performance at all because God wrote it, signed it, sealed it, and only stamped his name on it. It was not about man's performance because man wasn't involved in the agreement. It was a promise God made independent. Thus it makes this promise supersede that of the law. This is his point. I know this is kind of complex theology. The point, the law does not negate the promise given to Abraham. Thus Abraham believed in this promise. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Thus we can believe in this promise. It will be accounted to us for righteousness. The law doesn't annul or take away from that promise, nor does it add to it because a covenant is binding and the law is a lesser agreement because of mediation. That's Paul's point. Now with this legal argument out of the way, Paul gets to his second point, which is that the law was only given now to accentuate humanity's need for the savior. And if you think none of this is relevant for you, it is extremely relevant because you need saving. You can't save yourself. You're fallen, you're broken. Just do a life evaluation. You will come quickly to the conclusion that A, you're not perfect, and B, you got some problems. And if you think you don't, ask your spouse because she's got a list ready to provide, right? Amen, right. So Paul here, he's transitioning. Faith in a Savior has always been part of God's plan. Two, the law was given now to accentuate humanity's need for a Savior. And to make this point, to make this argument, Paul is going to first explain why the law was given before then explaining what the law accomplishes. So first, why the law is given. If faith in a Savior had always been central to God's plan for human righteousness, as illustrated, right, in the fact that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness, then it's only logical to ask, then why was the law given in the first place? Like, that is a logical question. And to this point, Paul gives you the answer. I mean, as clear as he can in verse 19, look at it. He says, as you're tracking with him, okay, what purpose then does the law serve? Thank you for that, Paul. That's exactly what I was thinking. And now he provides the answer to it. It, the law, was added. Added to what? To the promise because of transgressions. Now that's an interesting idea. Like consider that in most instances, a transgression occurs when someone breaks the law, right? Like the word itself literally means breaking or to cross aside something, to cross something. So to transgress means I'm breaking the law. And yet, in context, right? As we go from Abraham all the way now to the giving of the law, because we're told why the law was given. So the context is the children of Israel after Egypt. Why did this happen? 
Well, it's weird because it can't be transgressions in the traditional sense. Why? Because there's no law to break. You thought of that? So you got Abraham and you got Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons and the whole story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. And he gets sold out by his brothers and he ends up in Egypt and there's a famine and they go and then they like, they, they, they have a 400 year camping trip in Egypt. And they're hanging out in Egypt. And somehow over time, they become slaves. Just quick history from like the end of Genesis to, to Exodus chapter one. So that's kind of the plan. Over that course of time, there's no law. God has not given a law. He delivers the people. He frees the people. He uses Moses as his instrument. They're led out of Egypt to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is like, we're gonna kill you. And God parts the sea. They walk through. God drowns all the Egyptians. You know the story. They're in the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. There's no law yet. And so what's, what's weird is Paul says, you want to know why the law was given? The law was given because of transgressions. But wait a second. You can't have transgressions if there's no law. So that doesn't work in the traditional sense. You see what I'm saying? What it seems Paul is instead referring to was a very simple reality. And that is that the law was originally given because God's people had quickly lost sight of their need for a savior, which is the foundational premise of what? The promise given to Abraham. So the transgression is not a transgression against the law. The law didn't exist, but a transgression against the core premise of the promise. That is believing that is coming. And you can understand why this particular generation of Hebrews would somehow find themselves in this false sense of, of thinking that they didn't need a savior anymore. Why? Well, I mean, this was the generation that had been enslaved, had seen God raise up Moses, a deliverer, and then supernaturally save the people, right? And here they are trekking through the wilderness thinking we don't need a savior because we just had one, right? And yet here's the thing. While Moses may have been a deliverer, he was not the promised savior. Understand, the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai to help the Hebrew people come to the realization that their deliverance from Egypt was not to be seen as an indication they were somehow right with God, which would have been very easy for them to have thought or to have been lulled into. God just saved us. He delivered us. We're his people. He must love us. We're great. We're right with God. But no, they weren't. You see, as this holy, perfect standard illustrated, the law was given to remind the Hebrew people how undeserving of God's favor they actually were. Like if you go back and you even read through the whole account of, you know, Moses disappears on them. You know, great, our, our leader leads us into the desert. There's this mountain, and he's gone. And they don't know what's going on. Moses is obviously powwowing with God. And what do the people do? They want this golden calf made. But if you read why, they wanted this golden calf made so they could worship Jehovah. Now, it was twisted. It was warped. It was off. But they wanted it, what you could actually say, to be a sincere reason. They were thankful they had been delivered. They were thankful of God's handiwork. They were thankful God had given them favor. They had done nothing to deserve being delivered. God delivered them because he loved them, because he cared for them. And so they're like, all right, let's bake this calf and worship God. And then Moses comes down with the law and is like, this is an abomination. This is off. You're off. 
Me freeing you from Egypt was not to be seen as the fulfillment of this particular promise. To this point, Paul builds upon this notion by explaining that God had given the law to be a constant reminder to the people of their need of salvation. Look at it. Quote, till the seed should come to whom the promise given to Abraham was made. It's as though Paul is wanting his audience to realize obeying the law was never the aim of the law, but rather the people's failure to obey was the core intention. Do you understand that? The law was given not to obey, but to fail at obeying. That was the point. Think of it like this. It's why the entire sacrificial system came with the law. You see, what happened is they had this law to obey and they would try to obey it. And what would happen? Would they succeed? Never. They would fail over and over and over and over and over again. They would fail, but that was okay because that was the point. And then what did God have set up? Okay, when you fail to obey the law, you just come to the temple. You come to where God is. And what do you do? You place your faith in a sacrificial atoner. You fail to obey, that's great. Now offer a sacrifice to atone because I'm trying to teach you and prepare you for something. That was the purpose. And, and note, problems didn't arise within the Hebrew people, within the nation, when they failed to obey the law, but rather when they refused to repent from failing to obey the law. Which leads to Paul's second point. Why the law is given. Now he's going to say what the law accomplishes. The law was designed to accomplish a very singular, specific aim. To accentuate humanity's, and more specifically, your need for a Savior. And how did the law do this? Paul says in verse 22, look at it. But the scripture, the law of Moses, has confined all under sin. Now, the idea behind this word confined is to shut up together. It's to lock and throw away the key. Like it's, it, the word was used in, in other instances to describe fish getting swept up together in a net. It's to be caught. The law declares that every human being is a sinner. No, confined all, everyone. Regardless of who you are, what your family is, where you come from, what you do, all have been confined, stating that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And in case you think you're somehow good enough to escape that fate of falling short of God's glory, in verses 10 and 12, Paul's clear, look at it. For as many as are under the work, are, are, are of the works of the law, are under the curse. For it is written, and then he quotes directly from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. He says, cursed or guilty is everyone who does not continue in or completely abide by all things which are written in the book of the law. And that's not like the top 10, right? The 10 commandments. No, in the law contains 613 commandments. And then he says to do them or literally to perform perfectly. Then he says, yet the law is not of faith, Quoting from Leviticus 18, verse 15, the man who does them shall live by them. Understand, and it's this way within the legal system. The law makes no concession for partial obedience. Like you don't get pulled over for speeding and you're like, yeah, but like 80% of my trip, I was driving the speed limit. Shouldn't that be factored in? No, it, it doesn't play a role. It doesn't, 
It doesn't help you in any regard. The law makes no concession for partial obedience. The law instead demands complete adherence. James 2 verses 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. He is guilty of all. So if you want to obey the law, but you fail in one point, you're guilty of all of the law. And that's not like this, this brain teaser of a concept. Like how many, how many lies do you need to tell to be a liar? Like, is it three? Is that the threshold? No, no, it's, it's one. You, you tell one lie, you're a liar. Oh, or how about this? Like how many people do you need to murder to be a murderer? Is it like, well, two. No, no, no. Like you murder one and you're now a murderer. Like how many sins do you need to commit to be a sinner? Just one. And if you're a sinner, you've fallen short of the glory of God and your destiny's hell. Like that's the theological concept. You've fallen short of one point in all of the law. You're in a heap load of trouble. And yet the law, it does more than just condemn you. Well, thanks. Paul continues in verse 23. Before faith comes, not only are we confined by the law, but before faith came, we're kept under guard by the law. This phrase, kept under guard, it literally means the law served not just to condemn us, but then to bind us and hold us in this place of condemnation. Like the word presents the idea of keeping the inhabitants in a city that's being sieged by an aggressive enemy. You can't escape. You can't get out. There's no freedom. It condemns you and then it holds you in condemnation. That's what the law was designed to do. And why does the law keep us in bondage? Like why was this God's intention to judge us? A lot of people think that. Well, the law was given to confine us, to condemn us, to hold us in condemnation for judgment. It was to judge us, but that's not true. Was it for destruction? No, not either. Instead, the law keeps us in, our, in this fallen state. It keeps this fallenness ever in the forefront of our minds. Why? For judgment, for destruction? No. So that we'll be ready for a liberator. So that we'll be ready to be freed. It condemns us and it holds us so that when someone can come and liberate us, we're ready. Paul says, look at it. We were kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. This is why in verse 21, Paul asks, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Understand, the law was never designed to possess the power to save from the bondage of sin. It had the power to bind, not to free, but instead the law was designed to accentuate humanity's need for a savior, a savior from sin. Paul's point is that the law was not given in place of grace, but to work in concert with grace. It preps us for grace. It sets the stage for grace. Grace being our glorious liberation, our glorious freeing. The law was designed to strip a man of his self-righteousness. And let me put that into some common terminology. This idea that I'm okay, exactly like I am, like I'm cool. 
Like the law exists to make it clear you're not cool. You're not okay. You're not good the way you are. You have a problem. And then the law declares that person a sinner. It leads you to the conclusion, I'm not okay the way I am, I'm broken. And, and, and every day I live my life and make decisions that just accentuate my brokenness. I don't function like I feel like I was designed to function. There's something missing. There's some gaping hole I can't fill. I'm messed up. So the law strips us of our self-righteousness. It declares us a sinner. Then it enslaves that man to that reality. That's why there's bondage, but more importantly, a life filled with condemnation. I'm not okay. I'm messed up. I can't fix it. And I hate myself as a result. It's why there's an entire industry trying to solve your problem by making you love yourself, by exhorting you to love yourself, by giving you self-help tools to accomplish that. The problem is, is it doesn't work because the law is always there saying, you're screwed up. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You should feel like crap. It does a good job. It's pretty good at that, I'll be honest. Once again, look at verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin. For what fundamental purpose, right? So it does these things, why? That the promise, which was what? Salvation from sin by faith in Jesus Christ might be given, not earned, to those who believe or those who place their full weight upon him. So the law strips me of this thought that I'm all right. It tells me over and over and again, I'm never good enough. It fills my life with condemnation, condemns me and then holds me there. Why? So that man, I want nothing more than Jesus who can free me from this, who can save me from this, who can liberate me. I'm sick of this. I need a savior. That's the whole point of the law. And all this leads to another question. How is it that Jesus saves us from the bondage of sin brought about through the law? Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Look at that line. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This word redeemed. It had a very particular connotation in this culture. You see, the word redeemed, it signified the purchasing of a slave, which was not an uncommon thing because slaves were bought and sold all the time, but it was the specific purpose by which that slave uh, was procured that made it redemption. You see, you could, you could buy a slave for that slave to, to remain in slavery just in your home. You could buy a slave so that that slave could, could, could satisfy a debt. But to redeem a slave was to buy that slave for one reason and one reason alone, to set the slave free. That's the whole purpose of redemption. And this word communicated this to the audience of many which were slaves. That Jesus redeemed us. He bought us for what purpose? Freedom. That's it. He bought us to set us free from this bondage that the law had placed us in. 
And understand, redemption, it's not just being rescued. It's being liberated. And yet, redemption, it came at a price, right? Our redemption. Paul's clear. Christ has redeemed us. How? Having become a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this, this verse, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that culture, the one thing worse than death was dying and having your body placed in public display. It was a sign of, of humiliation. It was a sign of, of mockery. Understand, because of the public and humiliating work of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus died for us, We are no longer subject to the curse of sin, which is a separation from God, a separation from our maker, a separation from our fulfiller, a separation from the one who holds the key to how we should function. This separation from God was the result of sin, sin in the garden and sin ever since. And yet Jesus became a curse. He took that curse upon himself for us. He assumed the wrath of God. You know, it explains why in Matthew 27, verse 46, when Jesus is hanging there from the cross, he he cried out with a loud voice. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curse was separation from God, but Jesus redeemed us, having become the curse for us. In what way? He himself was separated from his father. Never forget, while God's grace may be free, it should never be seen as cheap. Like while I deserved it, Jesus took it. Grace is free for me, but it cost Jesus everything. The only way I could be redeemed is for Jesus to be cursed. That's heavy, man. In his book, The Prodigal God, Timothy Keller writes, quote, Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. Notice, according to Paul, salvation is not simply a work whereby Jesus took our curse upon himself. That's part of it. But is also, if you noticed, the adding of a very specific blessing. So he, he became our curse, but then there's a blessing. Paul says, having become a curse, why? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. And what is this blessing that comes upon those in Christ Jesus? Paul answers that by saying, it's the promise of the Spirit. Now that we understand why the law was given and what it was designed to accomplish, notice Paul's third point, his third case, third argument. Once you accept the Savior, so faith and a Savior has always been God's plan. The law accentuates that need. But once I accept a Savior, Paul makes the point, I'm no longer in need for the law. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, therefore, anytime you see therefore, ask yourself, student of Scripture, what is it there for? Basically, as a result of everything he's been talking about, the law, Paul says, was our tutor to bring us to Christ 
that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. This word tutor, it's confusing because there really isn't a parallel to our culture. In the Greek, the pedagogos was not a teacher. It was not a tutor like we think, but rather a child leader. In Paul's culture, it was normal that a particular slave oversee the life of a child. Like that, that slave was kind of a mixture of a nurse, a footman, a chaperone, a tutor, took the child to school, waited, brought the child home, made sure the child was fed, made sure the child had a bedtime story, was put to bed on time, till they came of age. That's what this word means. The law was our tutor. Since it's true, the law strips us of self-righteousness, declares us a sinner, binds us in condemnation, in order, right, that we might be able to accept Jesus, be ready to accept Jesus as our Savior, once we've been redeemed and set free, Paul's entire argument is that the law has no functional role in our lives anymore. And that makes entire sense, doesn't it? Erwin Lutzer, he said, when the mask of self-righteousness has been torn from us and we stand stripped of all of our accustomed defenses, and how does that happen? It's the law, right? That's the work of the law in my life. It, sh- it strips me of this mask of self-righteousness. It strips me of my accustomed defenses. And it's when that happens, what? We are candidates for God's generous grace. <laughs> Why then would we ever, ever, ever go back to the law? Like this explains why Paul originally sets up his entire theological disposition with this glorious declaration. Look at verse 11 but that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident. And he says that before he's even made his argument. He's like, I I don't even have to make an argument. It's evident. Look around. People trying to obey the law, are they more right for it? Not a chance. They're more haughty. They're more proud. They're not even fun to hang out with. I don't invite them to the holiday party. Religious people, total drag. That's what, it's evident. That's what Paul's saying. But, but I'll give you the argument. But then he says, he, he says, four, and he quotes Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Faith in Jesus. His work on the cross on your behalf is more than the mechanism for your justification or how you're justified before God, but it is the driver of how you're perfected. It is this relational association. I am found in Christ. Thus, when God sees me, he sees me just as if I'd never sinned because he sees Jesus. And how do I become more like Jesus? I don't. I die and let Jesus live through me so that any good thing you're getting from me, it's just Jesus. It's not me. I echo John the Baptist. I need to decrease so he can increase. If I got problems, it's me. I just need more Jesus. If my marriage is on the rocks, it's my fault. My marriage just needs more of Jesus coming from both parties. Jesus is the solution. I'm the problem. I can never look to myself as the solution. I must always look to him, the author and finisher of my faith. This verse, the just shall live by faith, it it actually sparked the Protestant Reformation. It's this verse that is why we're here this morning. It it, it started a, a revival in Martin Luther's heart that spawned a revival throughout the world. He remarked, he said, at last, Meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again 
and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals guilt, fills the conscience with terror, drives men to despair, much less sin is taken away by man-invented endeavors. The fact is, the more a person seeks to credit more seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper into debt he goes. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. And then he says, faith is a work of God in us, which changes us and brings forth, brings us to birth anew from God. It kills the old Adam, makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with it. What a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. As we noted, the whole disposition here based in two fundamental questions, right, about grace. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Faith had always been part of God's plan. The law accentuated your need for a Savior, but once that Savior comes, you just need the Savior. You don't need law. You don't need you. And, and then he says very quickly, he provides these, the glorious implications of this. Since the mechanism of Abraham's faith was a savior, not the law. Verse seven, Paul says, therefore know that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And then verse nine, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Understand the implication of what Paul is saying is an explosive concept. The Jews believed they were God's chosen people and therefore recipients of all the promises God had made to Abraham. Why? Because they were blood descendants. And yet Paul challenges the entire notion by saying one's inclusion into the lineage of Abraham's family has nothing to do with physical heritage, but instead faith and a savior. Verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And he'll expound upon that thought in chapter four. But in closing, because of your faith in Christ Jesus, you have been made not just a son of Abraham, but a son of God and daughter, meaning you're now a legal heir. Like this, this phrase, sons, it speaks to your position in heaven and your identity in Christ. All of the rights given to Jesus have been bestowed to you. Why? Because when God sees you, he sees Jesus. That's incredible. Additionally, Paul says that because of your faith in Christ Jesus, you've also put on Christ as you've been baptized into Christ. And this speaks of a total immersion into the person of Jesus. You've been clothed with Christ. You have this impressive standing. You not only share the same rights as Jesus as sons, but now you have the same access of Jesus because you've been clothed with him. You enter heaven. You have free access you need no mediator. You need no one standing in the way. You need no law. You have open access. Paul says you are all one in Christ Jesus. Because of the standing, because of faith, because of grace, not works, there's no room for a moral hierarchy. There's no room for, for moral superiority in the family of God. 
Grace is the strand that binds us all as one, which was no doubt an accusation poking the eye of these Jewish legalists, telling these Gentiles they had to be Jewish to have favor with God. Understand, positionally before God, we're all the same in Christ Jesus. Jews cannot claim to be better than Greek. The free man has no superiority in the eyes of God over the slave. The foot at the ground is level for both male and female alike. So many people, so many people struggle with two fundamental questions that speak to the heart of life. People struggle with who I am. Who am I? We struggle with identity, and we also struggle with a second question, what is my place in the world? What am I doing? Who am I, and what can I do to have meaning, purpose? And yet, interestingly enough, in this text, Paul is presenting a third question that answers the previous two. Instead of asking yourself who I am or where is my place in the world, ask yourself this, to whom do I belong? Because the answer to that question answers the other two. If it's in yourself, I hope you understand you're not actually free. The law will never allow you to find satisfaction and self-sufficiency and it will only serve to constantly remind you of your own frailty. The law will remind you that you're never good enough And it will shackle you in the prison of self-condemnation. And yet there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter what you do to feel better about yourself, earning God's favor religion or seeking satisfaction in the world, you will feel meaningless and empty apart from Jesus. Friend, the remedy is to accept Christ, to accept that he loves you, that he desires to free you from the law, the trappings of the law, that you don't have to earn God's favor. You can receive it and enjoy it. According to Jesus' own mission statement in Luke chapter 4, Jesus came to, quote, preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to free those held captive, to provide recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty, glorious liberty, freedom, from those who are oppressed. And this world, if anything, is oppressive. But you know what I find to be equally oppressive? Trying to earn something I've been given. Trying to earn a favor that's already been bestowed. Trying to to get God to love me more, to be more pleased with me, to be more satisfied with me. None of what I do accomplishes that, and it's frustrating because it's an idol in and of itself. Grace, it's grace, period. It's grace to enjoy. It's grace given by Jesus. It's Jesus in and working through me. Paul says that if you are Christ's belonging, you have a new identity as a son or daughter of God and you are provided with a lasting purpose. Since you've put on Christ, your life is no longer your own, but it's Jesus's. Romans 6 Paul says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. How? In Jesus. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God because they're Jesus's. For sin shall not have dominion, for you are not under, and I love how he concludes it, under law, but under grace. The law. It beats me down. But I'm so thankful that Jesus exists to lift me up. May we reject 
that trapping of thinking there's something I can do to add to what Jesus has already done. <laughs> Forgiveness. Forgiveness is why we're here this morning. Not judgment. Like you're not here this morning to be told how bad you always are. You're not here this morning for Jesus to throw some guilt trip on you. You're here this morning to recognize how awesome he is and to be forgiven. To say, God, I was a loser this week. I know you know it. But I'm so glad that that doesn't matter. That it literally doesn't matter. Because you died to forgive me, to redeem me, to set me free from condemnation.